1: From the Derek Duvall production Bunker, it's Derek Duval.
0: Welcome, welcome. What about that new intro, folks? Wow! Came out better than I ever hoped for, and I want to thank our master of ceremonies and star of Episode 7, Mr. Jeff Brown, for laying down that awesome welcome. I am Derek Duvall and this is episode 14 of, well, you guessed it, The Derek Duvall Show. Episode 14, the same number of episodes Lucasfilm intends to milk the Star Wars franchise to. I kid, I kid. Shout out to all the Star Wars fans out there listening. Remember, kids, Han shot first. For the more perceptive of our listeners, you'll know we had to take a week off. We unfortunately had a death in the family, and we need to focus on ourselves and prescribe ourselves a little self-care. And a little healthy time to grieve, and we want to thank everybody who texted, wrote in, tweeted, emailed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We read them all, and trust me, your 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 thoughts and everything was was well received. Thank you guys so so much. Really, really meant the world to us. But we are back now. Since we last hang out, I'm pleased to announce that our Scottish brethren repaid the 1999 favor and defeated the French to give my beloved Wales the title of Six Nations Champions. I was skeptical after last year's absolutely piss-poor showing, but man, I tell you what, Wales played like the threat they're always meant to be. Of note, that occurred just a few moments ago before we recorded, my mother-in-law found a pristine old blockbuster video card. You want to talk about Goosebumps. Holy moly, just a whole one in your hand. Speaking of blockbuster, have you checked out the last blockbuster on Netflix? Yes, I still laugh at the irony. Zeke and Taylor are doing amazing things right now, and if you haven't heard their guest spot on our show, head on over to DerekDeVallShow.com after this episode to find it, and I trust me, it's a great, great listen. So, episode 14. What do we have in store? (laughs) Well... We have an absolutely delightful guest, a treat for you, the star of the comedy classic Airplane, Mr. Robert Hayes is stopping by. That's right, folks, Ted Stryker himself is in the house. I've always admired his work, and we cover his entire career, including some of the lesser known non-mainstream stuff that, you know, have just become cult classics over the years. This will be a two-part episode, so as as this was a thrilling chat, um, we spoke for quite a while, so... Do yourself right now, pour yourself a drink, stretch his arms, and you know what? Let's just dive right on in. Here we go. All right, folks, direct from California, please welcome to the show for the first time, hopefully not the last, the star of Airplane Starman and so much other great stuff, the legendary comedy actor, Mr. Robert Hayes. <laughs> Robert, welcome to the show. How are you this morning?
1: I'm great. Thank you very much, Derek. All
0: right. I start off my interviews with the same as all the others. The first question is, how has the COVID-19 world been treating you?
1: Now, what I keep hearing about, what is this? Is COVID-19? <laughs> what is it? Is that, I, I, is that a new uh, Netflix series? Or I, I heard of the Corona beer virus, which is, I think, just a heavy hangover, but I'm not exactly sure what this COVID thing. No, it's, um, I, I had it. Uh, the doctors, my girlfriend got hammered. We we had to move into a place. I, I lost my home in the fire. So we were looking around for places to stay. And we wound up in this little spot that was a really, really neat place up in Oxnard in the marina. It was so cute, so charming. The people rented it from was so wonderful, but she got really sick. She had to get her over the hospital, uh, mm-hmm. took her over the hospital, and they put her right in and said she had COVID and had her in the ICO for nine days, tested her four times with that swab that they shove up into your brain, and and then the uh, blood tests. they did a couple of blood tests, and they kept saying, well, you're negative, but you sure seems like it's COVID. So we're keeping you on here. You're, a, you're a COVID case. And then finally they were confused about what was going on with it. And they sent her to the UCLA medical center. They were going to go in and cut her lung and take some tissue out. And her doctor said, don't let them do that. Cause then you're going to be old before your time. You're going to be, a, a, you know, a young lady. That's a little old woman dragging an oxygen bottle behind her. And you don't want that. Awesome. I, I think I know how to get rid of this. And She did some research and told the doctors, "I I don't think this is COVID. I think this is called hypersensitivity pneumonitis." And the doctor said, "Well, yeah, I I guess it could be." (laughs) (laughs) These guys are in charge of cutting you. Oh my god! She said, "I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to let you cut me open and do. I'm I'm going to go my docs." And I'm really surprised. As soon as uh, she did that, the the nurses there at uh, at UCLA have got a hugely wonderful reputation, but they turned into Nazis. They were awful to her. And I just have to say that because they got to change their ways. I mean, they'd come in and scream at her if she got out of bed. And it's uh, like, God, <laughs> back off. I just have to go to the bathroom. So it was pretty weird. So anyway, and then I started. So she, the doctor didn't want her to go back there, said it was something at the house. And I said, Well, the house is fine. I'm fine. And then she had to stay, uh, you know, got some little Airbnbs for her to stay in a drier climate, you know, not in the marina world. So then I started feeling bad, having headaches and just feeling really awful. And then I really started feeling bad. And so we had to get out. And we were moving, and she came back and masked up. She was feeling really a lot better by this time. And she was heavy-duty masks and everything, making sure the movers got everything out of there and she opened the shutters in the bedroom where i was sleeping and it was just covered in black mold so that's what it was causing it was the black mold so i was you know on death's doorstep well maybe that's a little overly dramatic <laughs> okay so i had a headache yeah <laughs> no anyway i got you know you get you get lung problems you get all kinds of stuff that you hopefully can get over if you haven't been around it so much, so uh, that's what uh, that's what we were doing, moving around, and that was because of all of us, you know. This COVID thing—it
0: gets. I feel like it gets everybody so much different. Like some people get a headache, some people get violently ill. I lost the hearing in my right ear mysteriously, and then a couple of weeks later, it came back. Um, mm. That was yeah. That was the most, and, and I obviously was never diagnosed with it, but there's been a lot of evidence to suggest that I had had a mild case um, because other yeah. people. All over the world, lost hearing in one or both ears suddenly. So, no. um, I'm, I'm thankfully, you know, my wife didn't get it, my mother-in-law didn't get it, but uh, right, yeah, it, it just it hits people differently. It, well, it's, it's we
1: hard. we had been on a ship. We've been on uh, uh, one of the boats that goes down the river, you know, in the, oh, yeah. the Rhine. We were that was the, the 29th of December, I think we started out, and so it was around the 2nd of January. We pulled into one of the docks, and it was the biggest boat on the the river. Mm -hmm. Um, All the boats were that length. There's only a certain length because of the locks that you go through, but it was twice as wide as the other boats. And so we pulled in, and another boat pulled in next to us, and they unloaded and walked through our boat to, to disembark. And I swear it was at least half the population of China walked through them our boat it was just kind of like oh a chinese tour but then when we look back on it that was the second of july of uh, january mm-hmm. and the virus had been it was already over here but we didn't know it mm. and uh, you know just beginning i think in july was the first time that they saw some uh evidence of it and i think well, wuhan was november wasn't it yeah Something like that. Anyway, uh, several of the group in our group, cousins and friends of ours, and several of them got sick. Uh, I didn't, and my cousin, my one cousin didn't, or two of them didn't, but their wives did. And we came back, and then uh, at the end of January, I went up to San Francisco for uh, Sketchfest, which is a comedy festival up in San Francisco. San Francisco's had it for 20 years now. And they had a a 40th anniversary celebration of their plane. And I went up with with Julie Hagney and and David Zucker and uh, Jerry, I think, uh, was down with something. And Jim, you know, they didn't come up. So I drove up because I like to stop off and see my cousins in Carmel on the way back. And my cousin said, boy, he'd been hit with something. And I said, oh, well, then I'm not going to stop by. He said, no, I'm over it. And so I stopped by and stayed with them for a few days. And then uh, when I left, I stopped off and saw some friends in Arroyo Grande for one night, uh, just a quick little overnight. And they were off the next day. So we all left and I drove back and got back that night. And I swear that night I was hit like a hammer. And this was before we moved up to the Oxnard place. It felt like all of my joints, my ankles, knees, hips, elbows, shoulders, all of my joints were, somebody whacked them with a hammer. I mean, they I never had the flu that did that. And it really got me. It really hammered me hard. But I used my magic uh, anti-cold and flu formula, my chicken soup and, and uh, gallons of water. and uh, just in bed for days and it was probably about five days of that and then after that you're better but uh you're weak for weeks after that just really tired and wiped out for weeks or even months after that so when she was in the hospital she had explained you know because they say well who have you been around who what's going on and she told them about my stuff and they said oh well that sounds like it to us that was COVID. so that apparently i had it
0: well i'm glad you're okay i mean like i said it, it it's very differently and I'm, I'm just really glad that you uh pull through and your girlfriend pull through yeah, so I'm, yeah
1: i'm i'm sort of glad myself <laughs>
0: all right so it's always fun to go back to the beginning now you're the son of a u.s marine pilot if i'm correct born in yeah. the washington dc area raised in a base on southern california tell me about those early years?
1: Well, I was I was born, Dad, we were a California family. They had chosen our home uh, as the Newport Beach area in Southern California, which is wonderful, wonderful place, especially when you're a kid growing up. He was, like I say, in the Marine Corps, so he was stationed in Washington, and I was born in Bethesda Naval Hospital, which is where they took the presidents for their physicals and, mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff, and so that was kind of fun. But uh, when I was eight months, I think somewhere around seven, eight months is when I uh, came back or actually the whole family came back, not just me. But uh, I took off and stuck my thumb out and said, I'll see you guys later. Eight months old. (laughs) I'm hitchhiking down the road. So we all came back. and, And then I've been across country by car 15 times growing up. Because Marines move more than probably uh, any of the other branches mm-hmm. uh, of you know, the service. Oh, that We lived in Turkey for three years and came back to again So it was all over, all over the place.
0: How is that, like, you're young. I mean, you go from place to place to place. Is it you pick up and start all over again and you just have to, you know, new friends yeah. and all that? I mean, it's awful. Is it, yeah.
1: It's terrible. <laughs> I mean, you make your friends... And then you got these friends, and all of a sudden, and we moved every, you know, two three years, mm-hmm. and so a couple of years, you make your friends, and then all of a sudden, you're being ripped away from them. Mm-hmm. You're being abandoned by your friends, but actually, you're the ones being moved. Yeah, you know, so uh, yeah, it's really rough. It, But there's a thing about, it's amazing how many actors have become that were uh, military brats. You know, how many people have become actors. And there have been two or three books that I know of that um, one's called military brats. The other has a similar title, And I'm I'm in all three of them. It's just of all the lists of all the people that they could find that that, uh, were in the same position. You become a gypsy, you know, just like actors are gypsies in a lot of ways.
0: Was there any aspirations when you were younger to join the military, or you just like you know it was Dad's thing, and I just want to do my own thing?
1: Yeah, I mean he was so amazing. He was just like Superman. He was so remarkable, and I I always kind of had I don't know I didn't know what I wanted to do. I I wanted to be uh, get my scuba qualification. Sometimes I finally did, but I wanted to be an underwater biologist, and all you know. Then I realized how much. Uh, how many science classes and math and all these other things? And oh my God! And I thought, oh man, that's a lot of. I just want to go swim. I'm a water baby, and I just love the, I love the ocean and lakes, and I love the water. I got my my scuba qualification, but my favorite thing is just snorkeling and just getting underwater and gliding. I used to be able to hold my breath, you know, a fair amount of time. My buddy could hold his well over four minutes but uh he's a sort of an uh, an abnormal human being anyway a big six foot five humongous guy with a great diver and all that but you know for me i can hold it close to three minutes and and that you can have plenty of time to to really get a nice time gliding around underwater through the little canyons underwater and uh if you need a little help stand down grab a rock and you know, just swim with that, and keeps you down there. You don't have to work so hard to stay down there. So it's fun. I just, I just love that. I love, I love the water.
0: What's the favorite place you've ever snorkelled? Oh
1: gosh, Hawaii, Guam, Fiji, and uh, oh gosh, I think that's probably a few islands in Hawaii and and Guam in different spots, and then in the Bahamas. Um, but that was that was. Uh, I was invited to go along with some new, newly found friends. Uh, you know Christopher Cross? Yeah, the, the singer, senior, yes. Songwriter. Yeah, so Chris and his wife were avid uh, scuba divers and they invited me to go with them. Mm. We were down for an event down there and I met them and they were wonderful, they were really great. We went down and dove, uh, went out on a boat where you, you dive down to the bottom and then they chum and bring in the sharks and we're sit in the bottom of the ocean floor looking up at all the sharks swimming over here just going crazy for the food. (laughs) It's funny. And then you later on head out, you know, find a break, a break in the pack. And uh, that was fun. That was really pretty amazing.
0: My wife and I, we honeymooned in the Bahamas, and I've Kind of at this even being in the navy which is kind of funny i'm kind of afraid of the water my wife obviously went off and she wanted to go scuba diving so she's out scuba diving and i'm on the beach having a complete heart attack because i'm afraid she's going to get eaten by a shark or <laughs> some of that so i'm sitting on this i'm sitting on the beach smoking a cigar and just basically having a nervous breakdown and she's having the you know the <laughs> best time of her life and i'm like just waiting for you know the, the jaws seem to kick in and I, oh gosh it was but she had a blast um Absolute blast! That's I just, I so just wish that? I had. A, I just wish I had the balls to get in there and just do it. I just can't do it. Yeah, it's,
1: you know, you do what you can do, and but there's there are places that you can do it too. Um, I a place that I went down. It was with tanks. They, I was down in Australia and I was uh, doing a PR uh, jaunt down there for Airplane Two. They asked if I wanted to do the scuba diving little thing in the Sydney Aquarium a massive, huge aquarium. I said, yeah, that sounds like fun. So we went down in with booties. We didn't have fins. It just had booties and weights and the whole, you know, wetsuit and the entire wheel. We went down. And they said, no, when we start to feed, I'll I'll give you the signal. And so you can tell me if you want to go up. And so we went down there for, I don't know, a half hour or so. And they said, uh, ready to go up? You're going to feed? And I said, no, 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 stay down here. So I just lay down and they gave me stuff and I was feeding all the animals. And they have the big, I'd say a nine or 10 foot long grainers shark, putting the food out in front of its mouth as it was swimming by. And it swam along the outside, along the wall. And I got up there when it was coming along. And then I went along by it just a little, as much as you can do with booties on. And they'll Held the food out about six inches or Inches away from the front of its mouth, and suddenly it opened its mouth to eat. But the the jaw with all the teeth slid forward. It slid out, and it was within just like a half inch, a quarter inch of my fingers. I could feel the you know the the water between it. it was just so the you know the movement of the water from it, and it just got it and all these rows of teeth. And I thought, oh my god, I didn't I never knew that they slid out like that. And then as it went by, I thought, oh, my God. And I thought, I wonder what it feels like. And I touched the side to feel the skin. And it just twitched and jerked away. And I thought, oh, stupid, Bob, yeah. don't be stupid. But it was pretty interesting. It was that rough kind of almost sandpaper. Um, to the yeah. skin.
0: the Do you know there's a famous uh, line from Robin Williams in one of his stand-ups I'll never forget. It's uh, when him and his wife had gone uh, uh, scuba diving, because I guess he was a licensed scuba oh. diver. And he said the the famous last words that um, every human should have when they uh, go in the water was, they don't look hungry. (laughs) (laughs) So your college years, you attended uh, Omaha University, which is now known as University of Nebraska. And later you went on to Rosemont College in El Cajon. Uh From there you took beginners acting and you learned acting, the production work. What about that class gave you the confidence to embrace the art of acting in theater and so forth?
1: Well, I had a wonderful, wonderful teacher. He was my first acting teacher. And it was, I think it was his first job as a teacher after, you know, his going through college and getting his degree and all, whatever. He's such a young guy. Even to this day, we still keep in touch. And he's, he's so youthful. Uh, He's got to be 80 now, or close to it. But he's like a kid. (laughs) And <laughs> so really felt like he was just barely a year older than us. You know, I don't know. I just i my uncle, my mom's uncle, my great uncle, had worked at Universal Studios in the publicity department and and you know doing all kinds of things in the print shop and and just I don't know, all sorts of stuff. He got me all these eight by ten pictures from people when I was a little kid, and it was like, oh wow which I thought I'd lost in the fire that wound up that I had them, which was like, oh my God. How fun. Oh, wow. I thought that I had lost them for good and I found them. And then I went through them at home and I thought, oh, how cool is this? But I didn't take pictures like with my iPhone mm-hmm. of the pictures and, and those wound up going. I, I'm now realizing that's one more thing. I just realized yeah. that's a, something else that I lost in the fire, but they were pictures from Janet Leigh and Tony Curtis that probably when they were married, you know, or sometime soon after that time. To Bobby, Best Wishes, Tony Curtis, Lee, Cary Grant. I mean, on and on and on and on. And Cary Grant was one of my, you know, the idols, the ones that you pattern yourself after. The, the I always thought I loved uh, Spencer Tracy and, and uh, Jimmy Cagney, but I didn't feel like I could play those roles, especially Cagney roles. Humphrey Bogart, you know, William Powell. Oh my God. I love William Powell, but I could play some of the stuff, but other stuff, there's no way I could do it like, like that. Mm -hmm. But Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda and Cary Grant and Gary Cooper, they, we were all sort of tall. They were, you know, my size are a little taller than me and, but we were tall and lanky and we had certain qualities that seemed to be kind of the same. And I thought, well, those are roles that I could do, you know, roles like that. So they were the ones that I always sort of patterned myself after and looked for things to be able to do that made me feel it could have been in that vein. And, you know, and there were others also. Like I said, William Powell, which <laughs> absolutely brilliant with all the thin man movies, Ian Myrna Loy. Oh, my Did God. you ever get to meet any of those great. people? Well, I met Cary Grant, Howard Koch, who was our... Our uh, executive producer and our leader, our father figure leader, on airplane, and we remain friends. And he was just the most wonderful guy. And he he got me. He was producing the Academy Awards, and he got me to be a presenter uh, twice at the Academy Awards. He was also a member of uh, the board of directors at Hollywood Park, the racetrack. So he uh, uh, you know was on the board with uh, Cary Grant. He had an event at. Paramount uh, my, my, and Kerry Grant was there and he introduced me and I of course was all <laughs> over made an idiot out of myself I'm sure but I got to at least I met Kerry Grant I was like oh my god and Jimmy Stewart I met when he had the Jimmy Stewart marathon that they used to raise money and you didn't have to run but you would just show up and you know do things around and and help with all the kids around and that was never running was never my thing. But one of them, I actually did wind up running with my boy, with Jake, when he was just a little thing. He was he was probably oh, four or five, maybe maybe six, but but probably four or five. And that little guy could run like a motor rocket. And so uh, we were we were going to run the part of the race where um, it was just like you know, a quarter mile or something. It was just something short. And so I said, okay. And I put him up on my shoulders and, and we ran with him on my shoulders. And so we're running along and then the rest of them say, oh, well, you're going to run the whole way. And I said, well, wait wait a minute. <laughs> you're not supposed to run the whole way. And I forget how many miles it was. Only a few miles. They called it a marathon, but it wasn't a 24-hour marathon or even a half, but it was just a few miles. So I just kind of thought, okay, and I put Jake down for a little while, and we just kind of walked it, because you could walk, run, walk, run. The whole thing was just raising money, you know, for the charities. And so finally, I put him back up on my shoulders, because he was tired, and we got up to the finish line, to the straightaway, to the finish line, and he wanted to get down. And I said, okay, you got to go toward that, that up there. And he started just running like a little scooter and he was passing all these <laughs> adults <that were laughs> running along and i was trying to catch up to him and uh so that turned out to be a lot of fun but that was my you know i got to meet jimmy and it's like oh my god and then when i was doing the series starman someone who was a fan of the show wanted to do an episode and so she was our guest star and that was janet lee and i told her about the pictures. We had pictures together on the set, and oh, it was just delightful. That's Absolutely delightful. These are things that, has, I mean, how lucky can a person be? I've just been so blessed with uh, with uh, the people that I've gotten to meet and the, the things that I've been able to do. And it's, just been, ah, it's funny,
0: they always say, like, never meet your idols, because, you know, they'll never live up to, you know, the, the vision you have. Yeah. In your head. No, it's true. Yeah. And I've been very yeah. fortunate over the years. I've I've met a lot of celebrities. I've never been starstruck except once, and it was uh, I got to beat Spielberg. And
1: oh boy, uh, and
0: Steven oh, Spielberg man. to me is I mean, he's one of my film idols. I I loved all his work. Jaws is my favorite film of all time.
1: And yeah,
0: it was the only time in my life I've ever been like couldn't get coherent sentences out of my mouth, and uh, he was so nice and the most friendliest person. And a lot shorter in person than I really imagined. But, uh, yeah, uh, that was the only time I've been truly starstruck. And uh, this it's so one of my favorite funny. memories.
1: Well, I, I that's funny. I James Taylor is kind of like that to me. I'm just, he's my favorite. And I went to the Universal Amphitheater, saw him there, and had backstage you know, tickets to get back to the mm-hmm. VIP thing after and passes and all that. And so I went and I'm standing there. I'm sitting with just a group of people, and James comes up, and I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, I we're all I'm talking, and he says, "Well, yeah, with that James, easy kind of laconic, easy going way, and he says, I think I was just go get myself a beer, and I said, you want me to get you one? <laughs> and he said... No, that's okay. I think I'll just go get out there. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm standing and I turn and the other guy standing there with me, you know, is Steven Spielberg. And I'm thinking, well, <laughs> I mean, what the heck do you say? I have no idea what to say to him. He's, and and think, the thing is, oh, people like
0: him, you know, they've heard it all before, you know, it's, you know, you oh, changed yeah. my life, you're, uh, you're the best. And all that. I'm sure it gets old. And
1: uh, I even mean, just to finish it, I, mean, I had no idea what to say. And I thought to myself, "Well, shoot, he's got to have, Steven bird. He's got to have a picture going somewhere." So I said, "So, how's the picture going?" And he said, "Oh, it's good. We're just uh, just about finished with the pre-production, and we're getting ready to shoot, uh, you know, over in London." And uh, and I said, "Oh, great!" And he said, "Yeah, it's pretty uh, good." I said, "Well, good luck, man. That's great." oh, excuse me, I, I got to go to the bathroom, okay, excuse me, because I ran out of things to say. And I thought, oh. well, that's a good thing. I spoke to him, and I left. I love. and I got to the bathroom, and I went, like, oh, jeez, if I bump into him again, what else do I say? I have no idea. <laughs> so yeah. that was that was the rest of that.
0: I, I got to ask you, there is yeah. a rumor that you took a class in meteorology in college. Is that true?
1: When I got to Grossman, I was late. It was late in the summer signing up and most all the classes were gone and there was a beginning acting uh, a track and field gym class and uh that meteorology class and i i took those three just so that i could get into the school Then I found out I had enough credits from uh, Omaha U that I didn't have to take the PE class. So I thought, oh, well, gee, I don't want to go out and just run all the time. That's one of my least favorite things I have to go do, which is too bad because that would have been really good for me. But (laughs) anyway, so I I dropped that. And then I was uh, taking the acting class and I was in the meteorology class and I had one of the worst teachers uh there at Grossmont, that i i can't even think of his name if i could i would tell you the name but but because uh, he does deserve credit you know because when you're really the best at something you should be acknowledged and he was the best at being the worst teacher i've ever I, I come across <laughs> but he found out that i was taking it because it sounded like it was interesting but i had no intention of being a weatherman i just thought it was really something that would be interesting i'd like to know about the weather and you know, I eventually took pilot lessons and got my pilot's license. But even back then, I was thinking someday it'd be fun, and that's always a good thing to know. You have to study that. And he used to berate me in front of the class and just make fun of me, try to humiliate me in front of the class. I guess to see if he could get me to quit, which I finally did. So uh, yeah, that was the that was the reason. But but I was interested in it. I I wanted to to learn about it, but. But uh, not with him. But then after that, I just crashed all the other uh, theater classes that I could once I found out that, oh, wow, this is something I actually like. It clicks inside of me. And I started crashing all the classes I could. And I got into all, so I had a full schedule and uh, history of the theater, history of costuming and makeup and set construction, lighting design, you know, all that stuff. So, so it, was, uh, it was really, really well. So Real after tough. college,
0: you had success in the local San Diego uh, theater scene. Now, I was stationed in San Diego, so I know some of these areas, like the like the Globe and and stuff like that. Uh, what are your memories? Yeah, that was my theater? home.
1: The Globe was was my home theater.
0: So, yeah. I mean, what what do you remember? Of that was that basically like getting your feet wet, performing in front of you know crowds and stuff like that. What do you remember? Well, most about
1: that? getting the feet wet, I would say, would be gross mom, and that was a couple of years worth of of that, which was just, gosh, it was so wonderful. It was just so wonderful. The teachers were great, and the whole atmosphere was great, and it was a small little thing that we were all putting together, and we I kind of came in on the tail end of it, but I was involved a little bit in the building of the, the little theater space, in the big room that they had, and uh, built a little, you know, theater with the the, the uh, seats going up, you know. So it was an actual sort of a flat thing where the people in the back are trying to reach up and look over to right. see what's going on up there. It was actually sloped up, so just like in the theater, it's really really dramatic. And uh, Biff Baker was our uh, set design teacher. The other one of of the of the buddies of all of us students, uh, Clark and Biff. And uh, we'd all hang out together and just talk about gentlemen theater and it was just wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And then from there, when I started working at uh, the uh, Old Globe, that was just, wow. It was so cool because that's a regionally known theater. They've won Tony Awards. Yes. And uh, for their regional theater successes, and there's the Shakespeare Festival is a nationally known Shakespeare festival. So, and then a very short stand at Center of the State. Yeah, the globe was the globe was really where you you plant the seeds at and you start kind of growing up the little tiny sprouts, but then when the blossoms come, that's at Grossmont, you know, and that's when you start getting a little fiber and bark on the trunk.
0: <laughs> You've been known to be kind of a constructor a little bit. You said that you like to work with your hands create things. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you still do stuff like that? Do you Woodworking or anything like that?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, my dad really was handy at doing all that. And and while I was down there at Grossmont is when um, he, he'd he been over in Vietnam and he read an article in a popular mechanic magazine on the front, uh, the cover article. It said, build your own home for one third the cost. So like he says, you know, oh, it's my Scott's blood. And, uh, <laughs> but that sounds really good. So he said, find some land. So we wound up getting land in Escondido. But when uh, he got back, we looked, and the city was growing in. Even by the time, from the time we bought it to the time he got back, it was already starting to encroach on that land. And it was like, hey, we don't want to be so close to the town. We want to be more in the country. So he found a guy, and he and his brothers, the Weir brothers, designed and built Adobe homes for people. And that's what mom and dad wanted to build. But they were breaking up their business and going their own separate ways. And uh, so Larry, uh, the brother Larry, uh, is when one dad was dealing with. And he said, well, this is what we're asking for all of our equipment. If you want to put a bid on it. So dad did put in the bid that they were asking. And so they they agreed on that. Got a skip loader, little tractor and cement mixer to mix up all the cement, but also the, uh, mixture for the adobe and got barrels of tools of trowels and hammers and, uh, transit and, you know, forms for the adobe, all kinds of stuff. Mm. And, uh, and he said, I've, I found this five acre, just a hair under five acres. And, uh, if, if, uh, you know, want to go take a look at it. So it was in Fallbrook. And so we looked at that folks really liked it. It had rained probably a day or two before he had flat sho- sold leather shoes and he just put his foot on the ground and turned his foot and it creamed it up. And he said, Oh man, this stuff is perfect for Adobe because you don't want clay. You want this Sandy loam material. He kind of, helped us what they would do the weir brothers they would design homes for people and they would help you as little or as much as you wanted so in other words if you didn't want any help at all then that was fine they would design it and then you would build it but if you wanted them to completely design it but then completely build it all themselves they do that too we were a build it ourselves type but we just you know when we had questions we like could call him up or he'd come out and say yeah no that's great Oh, no, that's good. And while he's wandering around, he said, God, look at this big boulder here. It was about a six-foot diameter boulder sticking up half out of the ground. And he said, you know, you could build a little outhouse right here. You're going to put the barn over there. You get the house over here. You have a little outhouse here. And just standing there, he sketched a little drawing, and then we we did that. We put a line down there, and uh, we got an old overhead pull chain toilet from my dad's uncle that had been in the plumbing business. And
0: (laughs) I remember remember those from growing up in Wales, it was over the
1: head. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, dad was really handy with that stuff. And I was in on all the aspects of the house from the very beginning. Very first thing I did was take the tractor and learn how to drive it by moving all the controls, then driving it, scooping up dirt without getting a big chunk out of the ground, just skimming it along and scooping it up and then making a pile. So we had a pile of the dirt And that's what we take a scoop out of and then pour it in, a measured scoop and pour it in the uh, cement mixer. And then, you know, so many buckets of water and then a bucket of the emulsified asphalt. And that would bind all the whole thing together and mix it all up real good. And then you pour it back in the bucket of the tractor, drive it over and dump it into the uh, forms and go wash it all out and go start over again. And so all the way to the very finished end, I was doing stuff on all aspects of it and working with my dad is just the best i love that and my mom my dad was 63 my mom was 52 oh wow and she drove the tractor so she was uh, dad called her powerful Katrinka, which was a, <laughs> a, a comedy uh comic strip in the newspapers back when they were kids mm. so uh <laughs> so yeah that was and then and then uh in the set construction because i knew how to you know hammer uh, nails i mean i knew how to screw in screws and use drills and use, you know, cut stuff. I had a wood shop in school and, you know, so I knew that stuff. So when it came to building sets, I was just right there, able to do all that.
0: So your um, move up to Los Angeles, 1975, and you saw some success Bounced around with TV roles, uh, supporting character roles in uh, Rockford Files, Laverne and Shirley, Wonder Woman. Do you have any funny stories from that period of time in your life?
1: Um, yeah. I mean, James Garner was one of the neatest guys. I mean, at that time, I thought, oh, wow, this is one of the neatest guys I ever met. And then it remained, he remained one of those neatest guys I ever met, even after meeting all the other really great guys. You know, Bob Stack was another great guy. And Peter Graves was, and Lloyd was a terrific guy. And and Leslie was a great guy and very goofy, very funny. But in the beginning there, I mean, I I learned some things about from James Garner that you can be a great guy when you're the star of the show and you can be taking care of the people around you and it makes the set a great place to be. And I've been on sets where it wasn't a great Mm. place to be because you had stars, you know, really taken with themselves and, and they... It made it really a not a really fun place to to be. So that's I had people come up, which was such a compliment. I mean, I felt so great when I did Angie with Donna Pescal, and that was that was her show. But it was the both of us starred in the show, but it was her show. It was developed from Laverne and Shirley with a girl named Car- Carolina White, a, a character from Laverne and Shirley. that then they did the a pilot or. Something with Carolina White, and then they decided to go a little different way. And they, who I think had played the role in Laverne and Shirley, Laverne's nemesis, and I, I was in the episode that that she was in, and I don't know if that's one that she was introduced in, but it was very funny that later on, when they spin off a show with that character that I'm the husband of that character, I had people come up to me years later and say that they had been on the show, they'd done a small part on the show, or whatever and then i had been so great to them they said that i made them feel so good mm-hmm. that they always appreciated that and i thought man what an incredible compliment and i also had that happen after people had been on uh the show starman that i did mm-hmm. which i'm probably as proud of uh that and airplane those are the two things that that uh are just Oh my God. They were just the most amazing experiences. And on Angie, I come away from Angie with having Donna Pescal and her husband, Arnold, as being two of my best friends. So, so that, you know, that's what I got from, from Angie. All the fun that we had on that show too. It was great.
0: So my thing about Angie is, like I said, a lot of people say like, it's kind of the comparison of Cheers and Frasier, you know, when it comes to spinoffs like uh, that. I mean, you got to work with Gary Marshall.
1: I mean, not alone. Yeah. Oh, he was he was amazing. Gary yeah. was great.
0: Okay, folks. Man, I'll tell you what. This is some damn good stuff. We're going to go ahead and take a little break, give you a chance to refresh your drink, and or practice some deep breathing exercises, you know, Clouseau style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Enjoy this promo, and our spotlight will shine on two deserving podcasts that are friends of the show. We will be right back. Hey everyone, I am Chris and I'm Christine and we do a podcast about life, love and hot topics. We're family friendly. Yeah, well mostly.
1: And you can catch us every week.
0: So subscribe to the Chris and Christine show on your favorite streaming service
1: and buckle up buttercup because you're in for some fun. Some fun. Oh yeah, that sounds fantastic. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at podgo.co. And be sure to add The Derek Duvall Show in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of your application looking for a new podcast check out the Infectious Groove podcast my name is Russ and I host the show along with Michelle and Kyle every Monday the three of us bring you music news and tell you our jammy jam so you'll always have new music to check out the Infectious Groove podcast discusses music from nearly every decade and genre while openly displaying our passion for music you need to hear on top of that we have a thought-provoking main topic of discussion every week to get you thinking discussing and sharing music we also include interviews with the music stars of yesterday today and tomorrow Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms. Subscribe and listen to the Infectious Groove podcast on your favorite podcast platform today.
0: Welcome back to The Derek Duvall Show. Feeling all right? I hope that breathing exercise helped. Okay, guys, let's just get right back to it. Jump right back into our awesome interview with legendary Hollywood actor, Mr. Robert Hayes. 1980, you have what actors only dream of called the aha moment with your first film role and what would become in film circles, probably one of the top five funniest comedy classics of all time, which is uh, the Zucker Brothers and Jim Abrams' Airplane. What was your reaction the first time you read the script? The first
1: time I read it, I was on a plane. Oh. With Donna, Pascal, and Howard Cosell and a bunch of people from ABC flying back from LA back to Minneapolis, St. Paul, and they had a TV station called KSTP T V and it was the oldest TV station west of the Mississippi. And it had changed from NBC, it was changing to ABC. So ABC sent out a bunch of its T V stars and they were having a big deal about it. And on the plane I was reading the script for the first time and there was something literally on every single page that made me laugh. That made me laugh out loud, made me make some sound. That, you know, you you can kind of chuckle to yourself, you know, just a quiet thing, but yeah, boy, I'm laughing at that, but you're not making any sound. This, I made a sound, something came out of me on every single page. <laughs> and there was a stewardess that was, uh, and I've told this story a million times, but there was a stewardess on there and she was so kind of puckered up. She had a bun, her hair was up in a bun and she had a kind of a, it wasn't severe, but it was a very sort of a kind of tight Attitude, quality about her, but she came by and she said, "I could not help but notice that you seem to be enjoying that what you're reading." And I, I said, "Oh yeah, it's a it's a script. It's a, I'm going to be going and meeting with them this coming Tuesday, and I uh, I just wanted to you know have to read it before I go in there." And I said, "You want to read it when I'm done?" She says, "Well, that would be nice. Thank you." And so I finished and I let her read it. And, you know, when you're sitting there in first class, you're sitting there and you see right up at the the bulkhead that goes into the, you know, the doorway goes into the uh, pilot's cabin. Mm-hmm. Right there, they have the little seats that drop down, the stores to sit on, the little jump seat right there. And so she was sitting right there and I'd look up and see her and she had her knees together, very prim, had the script on her lap. She was buckled in and she sat there and she looked at it and then she would turn a page And she read it. And then a little while later, I looked up and she was starting to kind of smile a little bit here and there. And I thought, oh, well, that's good. She's smiling. And I kept, you know, doing what I was doing. And I looked back and she was turning the pages and I'd see her smile getting bigger and bigger. And then I looked down, I looked up a little later and she was starting to really, really chuckle. And then I looked down, I was doing some stuff and I looked up later and her bun and her hair had come loose and she was laughing uproariously. Her knees were all cocky. And I thought, well, I'm not the only one that thinks this is funny. That's good. (laughs) So then I went in and I met with the boys and they were wonderful. My agent, Arnie Soloway, had hired a woman named Beth Boyku, who had worked with Howard Koch on some things. And she was a new agent in the office. And she called Howard up and said, I know you guys are having trouble finding your Ted Stryker because they'd been back to New York and Dallas and Chicago and Minneapolis. and I mean, they'd been all over the place. Mm-hmm. And they'd gotten all the roles cast, but they hadn't gotten Ted and Elaine. And she said, I've got your Ted. And Howard said, well, bring him in. So I went in with her. Uh, met with the boys, that's what we called Jerry and David and Jim and Howard. And then we all got along really well, we liked each other, it was great. And then they wanted me to read, so I read and they liked my reading, so they wanted to screen test me. And fortunately for, for me, maybe for both of us, but uh, Julie and I screen tested together. They said they liked my spit take <laughs> in the mm-hmm. screen, screen test, it was the one. Where uh, you know he thinks he's Apple Merman. Uh, George Zip wouldn't say, "Oh yeah, George Zip died." twice, spit. They said, "That's it. You're the one." And then they said, "You know, uh, Jim Abrams." They came over to the set of Angie, and they told me back behind the the uh, psych behind the set, and they said, "Yeah, well, you're the one." And so we were all four kind of jumping up and down like silly kids just for a silly second. And and then they said, "Okay," I said, "Well." I guess I better get back to work. All right, yeah, you get back to work. We'll see you later. And as they're going out, Jim turned to the other two and said, you know, we ought to watch this show that he's doing and see what it is that we got here. And they watched Angie, which is, if you know sitcoms versus film, that's a totally oh, yeah. different and and thing. And And they you're playing to a live audience and you're playing to the camera and you've got to hold for laughs. and you can, And they looked at it and they went, oh, no. We made a mistake. And and then uh, every day for the first, I don't know, week or so, Beth would come on the set. She was so excited because she had, you know, gotten me hooked up with, with them. So she would come over and visit on the set. And once it started, they saw it was I was in tune with what they had in mind, too. So uh, because that was my kind of comedy that was my favorite thing. and. They would go over to Batch every day and say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. (laughs) I found out that later on, and that was really fun. That was neat that they
0: said that. I I have to ask this one question. How many, on average, how many scenes would you film a day?
1: Well, it depends. I mean, some scenes are more complicated, and it would take you a whole day to film something, maybe even several days to film something, like uh, uh, the dance sequence. That took days to do that. but. Other scenes are so short that you can film that, move on to the next one, and you can get, you might get five scenes done in a day, on one day, and then another time you'll take several days to do one scene. And then you've got, uh, there's a very famous story about the uh, the producer, the money guy, mm-hmm. and they are having such a problem on Ben-Hur over in Rome. And they said, it's one eighth of a page because you go into, you know, eighths or quarters, a half page or three quarters or the whole page mm-hmm. or several pages. But you have a scene that's just one eighth of a page and it says scene number whatever. And it says establishing shot, exterior, you know, that explains whether it's day or night, uh, exterior, or interior, whether it's an establishing shot, an interior shot, whatever. And then it has the scene. And this thing was an eighth of a page. It was just, just that much. And it was one little line. And he said, how can you be taking six months to shoot one scene, one eighth of a page? <laughs> well, the one eighth of a page was in Ben-Hur. And it said, and the race begins. Uh. (laughs) and and so they had to film the entire chariot race and it was just one eighth of a page and the guy back there with the money in la and hollywood is saying how can this take you so long to film this well hey think about it Mm -hmm. you know they finally realized what the heck it was but it all depends yeah it all depends
0: What's your best memory of meeting Julie Haggerty? Uh since you guys this was both really your first like major film role. Uh do you guys oh, keep God. do you guys keep in touch still? I mean do you
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. The uh they're coming out here, uh she and her husband Richard are coming out here uh next week. We're gonna have a little a little something to eat. Mm be uh, socially distanced and make sure we'd slather ourselves up with all the appropriate (laughs) hazmat suits and everything. But uh, yeah, they're just, she is so funny. My God, she's so sweet. One of my favorite things uh, of her in the film, it's a scene that we filmed right behind the cockpit when I'm up there and it's you know, uh, but why couldn't it work out? And why couldn't all that stuff? And then she has said, well, I've got to go. And she leaves me and I'm standing there. And then I go back to my seat and sit down again. So it's that little scene right up there. And she had a line. Now, we're filming this in between the break um, Angie. It was seven weeks. And the, we started filming over that summer break. And the last two weeks, I filmed both of them at the same time, which was ungodly. Um, <laughs> It's exhausting. This was just before that, but but we'd already done that half season of Angie. And uh, she had a line. Uh, I have a line. And then she has a line, and she went up on it. And they said, cut. And she said, I'm sorry. With that little voice of hers, that's her real voice. And she said, I'm sorry. And he said, no, 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 don't worry, Julie. It's okay. Uh, script, you got the, the, the line there for her? And she said, yeah, yeah. You got the line? Yeah, I'm sorry. She said, no, 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 don't worry about it. It's okay. She said, well, I'm sorry. Okay, Julie. So they said, Ready? Okay, we're ready and action. Now on Angie, when we'd have somebody on the show, I and they'd blow a line, a guest star or somebody, and they're feeling a little nervous and they blow a line, then you know, I'd say, Oh, come on, get it together, would you? And then they'd start to shoot the scene and I'd blow the line and I'd do it on purpose. Just to kind of make them feel good. We'd all laugh and then they really would relax and then we'd all sit and see that we're all having a lot of fun. So I was thinking about that and I don't know if it was because I was distracted thinking about that or what, but I blew the line and they said cut. And Julie said, I'm sorry. She says, No, Julie, it wasn't you. It was Bob. She says, Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, that was Julie. That's awesome. That was her. She's just the sweetest thing on the planet.
0: We watched it last night, just to refresh myself, because I haven't watched it in, in a little while. And I still to maintain to this day that the Saturday Night Fever scene is probably one of the funniest things I may have ever seen in my entire life. And, <laughs> awesome. uh, I I know, like I said, uh, you know, this generation, I know a lot of them have probably never seen um, Saturday Night Fever. But uh, that scene, for my, someone of my age, it just is one of the funniest things. I never, ever, ever will ever stop
1: laughing at that scene. Well, we had Lester Wilson as one of our choreographers, and he was one of the guys. On uh, Saturday Night Fever, that did the you know the choreography and yeah. and gave him the tone, gave him some moves, and gave him that tone. I know that it was, oh shoot, the Italian guy, I can't think of his name, that they usually credit with the choreography on the show. But Lester was one of the people that apparently really gave it a flavor. He was this really cool guy. He's just so he was really neat, and he gave us that kind of flavor of how you move. And then we had another guy who was a Disney staff choreographer. And so when Lester wasn't there, he was there, you know, working us. And we worked for a couple of weeks on the rehearsal of it. But but one thing I came up with, because everything on that show was, it was so tight. It's what they wrote. It wasn't improvised. Mm -hmm. It was all just right there in the script. And it was so tight. But one thing I came up with was that when we went to shoot the scene, the dance scene, I come up straight. I walk straight up to her, and I'm facing her, and, and the camera is over to the right. But they needed the camera to be to the left, and they were thinking, "Oh no, what are we going to do? Well, oh, well, can't you? do Well, can't we?" And I said, "Wait a second. What if when I come up to her, we just circle each other like animals in the jungle? And I'll circle her, and we'll get around them. We're in the right position. And I take off the jacket, throw it away, and then strike the pose. And it comes back and hits me." And they said, well, let's try that. And I did it. And they said, perfect. It works well. So that's my move. <laughs> so I feel very proud that I uh, actually created something.
0: <laughs> the film is known, obviously, catchphrases. Uh, one of them is listed in the AFI 100 Greatest Film Quotes. When you did the Shirley Can't Be Serious, did you know that was going to be the, the the pinnacle of you know what people mostly remember that show for?
1: Mm, probably. We couldn't have guessed it at the time. But... Uh, I th- I always thought it was going to be like a college cult favorite, the mm-hmm. film. And then as time went by, I, well, at first I just thought, you know, it might be just kind of silly film, who knows where it's going to go. Then I thought it might be a college cult favorite. But then I started thinking this could be something more. And then everybody else started feeling that. And when you feel that way, you never you never talk about it. And one guy who's a day player came up. And he joins in the group and he says, "Hey, boy! I hear this thing is going to be a huge hit." And everyone turned and walked away. It's like, oh, "Don't exit." Mm-hmm. And uh, people always ask, "Do you know it was going to be that great, uh, that big of a hit?" And I said, "If if I knew that, I could control the world. I'd have yeah. a crystal ball." But there were there were a bunch of different things that popped out. And the funny okay. thing is that surely you can't be serious. Which was my line, and then his line is "I am. Don't call me Shirley." They say my, lo- my line wrong every time they come up to me. And they'll say, "Well, certainly you aren't serious," uh, or "Well, of course you you can't be serious." I, I mean, <laughs> and I think, "Yeah, well, sure I am." And they'll say, <laughs> and they'll laugh, but they don't get they don't get it. And it's just very funny. It's very
0: funny. It's like um, in Star Wars, they always get the the line, you know, "Luke, I am your father." They always get that that line wrong, which is. Uh, oh yeah. So uh, Leslie <laughs> Nielsen would go on to be a comedy force of nature. Where you know you watch f- films like The Naked Gun. What do you take away from meeting him and seeing him do comedy for the first time on airplane?
1: Well, he was he was always that crazy. Apparently, like what he says is he he always wanted to do comedy and really goofy stuff like that. But he was a little nervous about doing it. But it was. It was airplane that essentially opened the door for him, but it was the boys that pushed him through, and that's his his uh, description of how you know how he got into the whole silliness and doing all that silliness afterwards. He always wanted to do it, but he never quite he never had the opportunity. He never quite had the the full support, mm-hmm. you know, whether it was just inside himself or from anybody else, until the boys came along, and then there. <laughs> And then, then they unleashed him on the rest of the world. So,
0: I always say, maintain uh, Leslie Nielsen, probably the greatest scene he ever did uh, is in Naked Gun, where uh, she, he's talking to the mayor about stabbing five actors uh, in the park, and it was a Julius Caesar re- reenactment. I, I think that's probably one of the funniest scenes in
1: film <laughs> history. So. Speaking of yeah. Leslie, he had a little fart machine. You know about that, don't you? No. No. Oh, my God, it's legendary in Hollywood now, but nobody knew about it at the time. It was pretty new then. But he had a little thing in his hand. He'd squeeze like a whoopee cushion, and he would make a fart, the little pfft sound, hmm. or various kinds. He could make all kinds of sounds with it. But he would do that so much, that, uh, and they brought a shoebox, a box full of these things, because a doctor, a friend of his, had invented it. And he brought them to the set, and people were buying them, I think, $7 a a thing. I saw one. And I said, Oh, I went home and I made one. I just made my own. <laughs> and so everyone was using these things on the set. And the cameraman and the sound guy, okay, roll camera. And you hear speed, roll sound, speed. I mean, it was just to the point that Jerry Zucker finally said, Get those things off the set. <laughs> it was kind of crazy. But in the scene in the cockpit, when they say, Mr. Stryker, can you land this plane? And I say, well, Shirley, you know, surely can't be serious. And he said, I am serious. So don't call me Shirley. And then it goes on to, well, I flew single engine fighters in the war, but this plane has four engines. It's complete, you know, an entirely different kind of flying altogether. And then altogether, they say, it's an entirely different kind of flying. Well, it was a two-shot of them. But for my close-up, the entire scene, it was, Mr. Stryker, can you slam this plane? <laughs> I had to keep a straight face during that whole thing. That was the most difficult scene in the entire show for me. Oh,
0: that's awesome! Oh yeah, man, January eighty one, you hosted Saturday Night Live. You you were there, rubbing <laughs> shoulders. You know Eddie Murphy's there. What's your favorite memory of working on SNL?
1: Oh, when I think about that show, I think about them telling me Joe Disco, uh, Dixo was his name, but they called him Disco. And I had just come off of doing the film Take This Job and Shove It with Art Carney and Barbara Hershey and Tim Thomerson. And uh, I had a hat that was Take the Shove and Shove it from the, the Country Western song, David Co song, and Johnny Paycheck had made a hit of. And he loved that hat, so I took it off and gave it to him. And he wore that around all the time. They told me, we do the show first, and it's rehearsal. And don't be thrown by the audience. Because they're going to be really pissed off that they didn't get to uh, see the regular show. They only get to see this rehearsal, the dress rehearsal beforehand. So they're going to be like really crappy. And don't let that throw you. Well, they were great. (laughs) They were really, really great. And then the show came. And we start off the show. And there's this whole scene where I'm on the phone with a friend of mine. And he's telling me that he's got a gal that he's sending over. And it winds up being an inflatable doll and that's mm. the whole thing with that. So we do the the rehearsal and everything goes along and it's actually, you know, got a couple of laughs and it was fine. And then uh, I go out there and we say, ready, here we go. We're going to go live. And I'm talking with the audience a little and playing and then they say, "Places. we've got uh, 15 seconds. So I finish up talking to them and I wander over there and there's no phone. whoever, I don't know, props people or somebody as a joke or I or I don't know what. There's no phone. And the whole thing is me starting on the phone. And I said, hey, Joe, where's the phone? And he said, what? My phone. Where's the phone? And somebody see Robert's phone? And, you know, huh? I don't know. I don't know. They were <laughs> really, And so he said, oh, just do it without it. And I said, what? He said, yeah, do it without it. So if you want, you're on. And it's like, what? and I'm standing there with egg in my face. And so the whole show that's supposed to be the good show wound up being so horrible because it started off on just the wrong thing. I was so thrown and I had no idea what to do. So I'm flubbed around and I I don't even know what I said, mm. but it was just awful. So the people were fun. The people were great. Gilbert Gottfried was on it and Charlie rocket and, and you know and eddie and and they were great they were all really fun but but i just have nightmares about that show because of the way that started out <laughs> it I, 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 feel, I feel horrible thing. bringing it up right now i do apologize <laughs> wow
0: 1982 you come back for the airplane sequel uh what do you remember most from filming it and uh what when you look back at it what what do you think about it
1: well, the boys didn't want to do anything they thought they'd done it already and so they didn't want to do that. So they got in. They, they wanted the device of a writer-director. So they got uh, Finkelstein to write it. And, and he was a Canadian guy. And he was a very funny guy. And he, uh, he wrote it and then directed it. And he asked me to come in and work with him on it. So I would come in and meet him at his office there at Paramount. And we would work on the script every day. One day he came in. He was so flustered. And I said, well, Scott, Ken, what's the matter? And he said, he just leaned down on the desk like he was exhausted. And he said, finally, I know what it's like to make a film in Hollywood. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, making the deal is like having sex with the girl. Making the film is like trying to get her out of your apartment. <laughs> and, and, and I, I laughed but he wasn't laughing. I went, Oh God, you've had a tough one today. He said, Oh Jesus, this is terrible. Anyway, we just, you know, we, we, uh, we had a lot of fun doing it. It was really was, it was a lot of fun doing the show, but it was, it was different. Mm. And, and even though he's a very funny guy and he's really talented, but he, he, the boys are special yeah. and their sense of timing is just, I think perfect. And it's just, uh, uh, you know, there were just little tiny, tiny things that you could tear apart. But but then people that saw Airplane 2 first, mm. and there are a few people, only few, uh, to you know, that I've ever met. But the people that uh, saw it first said they liked it better because they'd already seen the joke. You know, they've already seen it.
0: I posted it on Twitter. People were saying like, oh, I love Airplane 2. And I'm kind of scratching my head. I'm like, well, did you not see the first one? Oh, you know, so. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, but uh, my son, his favorite line in all the airplanes was uh, in Airplane 2 when William Shatner was behind the door and just, you know, go, and the door would open, but only open or close when they would make that sound with their mouth, like the sound the airlock sound of the door, and the door would open, and then, and he said, uh, who's the pilot of the plane? He said, oh, well, the pilot of the plane is some... One of the passengers, he's some guy named uh, Stryker. And Shatner says, Stryker? Ted Stryker? He said, yeah, you know him? Never heard of him. <laughs> and then he says, that's not entirely true. Once we were like brothers. And that got my son, when I mean, he was a little guy, <laughs> that got him so funny. I mean, he just, to, to this day, he just turned 30. And that's still his favorite line. That's crazy. So. Everybody has their
0: own little, you know, things. So you have obviously, you know, yeah, good roles over the years, and one that sticks out to a lot of people is 1986. We brought this up earlier. The 1986 TV adaptation of the film Starman. Do you still get Uh asked about that role? And when you think about it, what do you remember most?
1: I had a deal with Columbia, Columbia TV, and and uh, film, and we couldn't come up with a film. You know, I'd come up with something, and that they said, "No, I don't know, that's not quite right." And they'd come up with something, and I said, "No, that one doesn't feel right to me." And we were trying, but we just couldn't come up with anything that we all agreed on. And then with TV, they'd they'd tell me something, and I'd go over and listen to it, and it was like, "Oh God, that's, no, that doesn't sound good. No, that doesn't sound good." And finally, literally the last day uh, before that contract ran out. One of the guys called me. Wonder, these are wonderful guys over there, wonderful people. They called me up and he said, I've got the show for you. And I said, really? I said, what is it? And he said, it's, now. Nah, I'm not going to say anything. Just come over and let them pitch it to you. Because he would tell me the whole story beyond all these other ones. Well, when I get over there, it's Starman. Now, I had seen the film and I really liked the film. I I. I read the script and I was up for the role, just along with a million other people. But that's before I had any, you know, real credits. I hadn't done Airplane yet, and uh, don't think I'd done Angie yet. Anyway, I read it and I, it was one of my favorite scripts. I thought, oh my God, this script is incredible. My first thought was, oh crap, no, I don't want to, I don't want to do something that Jeff Bridges did and and uh they did the film and tv usually is kind of a lesser version of a film and yeah so i had all these things against it but mike gray and john mason the two producers and writers of it they were creating the tv series pitched it in such a great way and they were so terrific i liked them so much that i said okay let's just go ahead and Yeah, let's give it a try. And it wasn't going to be doing the same thing. It was going to be 13 years later. So we did the show. And when I was on the press junket with ABC, I had one of the rooms was uh, one of those long, skinny rooms. I'm sitting there at a long table and they had me on that side and about 15 newspaper columnists on the other side from newspapers all over the country. And directly across from me was a woman with a real snide sneer on her face with her arms folded the whole time. And all these guys and gals would be asking questions and I'd be talking about it. And and finally it came to her and she says, so how do you like playing Jeff Bridges? Because she was obviously in love with Jeff Bridges and hated me for even doing this, attempting this thing. And all these writers kind of went, oh, geez. You know, what a snide, awful thing to say. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, and it just occurred to me just off the top of my head. I said, well, the guy is an alien. But even he knows that after 13 years, Jeff Bridges' body would smell pretty bad. So he took mine. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody just fell on the floor laughing. And they all put it in their columns. And she just sat there and just, just really stewed. (laughs) and uh so that was one of my favorite favorite bits but but uh and i have no idea to this day i cannot remember who that was and Mm. gosh it just became so special so quickly that the boy on it cb christopher barnes he just was a great kid and i just loved working with that little sucker and. Mike Gray, that was the producer, writer, you know, co-creator of it, directed a whole bunch of the shows. And all the people that we had that came on that directed it were were really, it was just a great show. It was kind of like the fugitive and highway to heaven combined. It was full of so much humanity. The guy wasn't human and yet he was full of more humanity than anyone. It was kind of like, I always figured that he held a mirror up to people and as he would talk with them, They just, it seemed to soothe them and it seemed to help them see what they were doing or see what they were feeling or whatever. It was just, it was just remarkable. I got a letter from a teacher saying, how dare you cancel that show? I use that show in my class. Every time it's on, we have an assignment for all of them to watch the show and come in the next day and we can talk about it. That's just the best show on TV for showing relationships and a father and a son and showing real values. And I wrote back and said, "It's not me. I want the show on. You got to talk to the network." <laughs> you know, they, it was kind of too. It was too late because when everybody really wrote in and said, "You know, you know, we want the show on," they'd already made up their mind. And ABC said that it was the. It was the. Uh, they told Bob Urich. Remember Bob Urich? Yeah, yeah, I know Bob Urich, the uh, actor producer. Well, yeah, and and he was doing Las Vegas or Vegas, I guess, was the name of the show, and all those other that he had done. And, and he told me that one of the ABC guys came up to him and says, you know, the biggest mistake we made the whole season was not renewing Starman. Mm-hmm. And they told us, uh, and this was like a few years later, they told us that it was literally, it wasn't even the last minute or the last second. It was literally a a piece of a second. That's how close to the wire it was that they, they just couldn't quite, you know, figure it out. And uh, if they should or not, and they almost immediately regretted it. But by that time, you then have to go get everybody back, renegotiate all the contracts. I think everyone would have come back for the same deals that we had that we'd already put in place. You know, wouldn't have negotiated a whole new deal. Uh, I think it would have we could have done it. But by then, it's too late. You can get a Blu-ray edition of it now. You can. Yeah. Yeah. I actually had the Blu-ray edition. With my, I, I kind of got a collection. I tried to get a, get a collection together of all the things that I have done. And I, I had a pretty, pretty good one going. But I had that, too. All of that's gone in the fire. But, yeah, I, 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 had a, I had a copy of that. Okay, folks, that brings
0: us to the end of part one of our interview with Mr. Robert Hayes. Man, it's like having a front row seat to some truly Hollywood magic. Look for part two coming soon, and it's just as good as the first with some stuff you wouldn't believe. It's so awesome. I want to throw a thanks once again to friend of the show, Mr. Jeff Brown, for the amazing intro. It's truly worthy of your talent, sir. Truly worthy.
1: Hey, Derek. I've had some friends ask, how might they be able to help support The Derek Duval Show?
0: It's funny you say that, Mrs. Duval. I believe they can go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, and click at the very bottom of the page the link that says, Buy Me a Coffee. The listener's support goes far to bringing quality entertainment day in and day out. Their support is greatly, greatly appreciated. On that note, on behalf of the entire production team at The Derek Duval Show, remember, be well, be kind. And get the damn vaccine. The sooner we get back to normal, the sooner we can all do things we used to enjoy like, oh, I don't know, traveling. Remember, folks, this is a completely unique talk show. All together.
1: This, this is, is a completely, completely unique talk, talk, talk show. show.
0: See you soon, planet Earth.
1: This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com, for the latest news on downloads and to explore past episodes. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Show.